0: Well good morning everyone. Uh, We've been reading together about David's life from the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel Uh, and for the last couple of weeks uh, we have been reading uh, one of the most uh, notorious and difficult stories of his life. His uh, adultery and the murderous cover-up that followed it and the first signs of the consequences of all of that. So we're going to finish that part of the story this morning. I'm going to read uh, from 2 Samuel 12 for us. You can follow along uh, in the order of worship. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went down to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing you have done? You you fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask, uh, as we always do, that you would use this word uh, that we've read and heard together uh, to speak to us and to teach us. We ask that, uh, like that man that Jesus touched, that we would be able to see again. Father, meet uh, those of us here this morning who have faith and those of us uh, who don't and those of us who aren't sure. Meet those of us um, who are filled with joy and those of us who feel bored and distracted and those of us in sadness and suffering. Meet us all. Show us again how much you love us in Jesus and change us by that love. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Last week, uh, a friend of mine sent uh, around an essay written by Jane Marchewski. Uh, She sings and writes under the name Nightbird. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but she had just appeared on America's Got Talent. I think that's why this essay had been found and why this essay had started uh, making the rounds. This essay is about her back and forth with God as she deals with both cancer and mental illness. And uh, her writing alludes to stories in Scripture. There are parts of her writing that sound downright psalm like. They are petitions to God, they are arguments with God that she made from her bathroom floor. She writes at one point in the essay I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden from me. It is not the mercy that I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And then uh, here's the last line of her essay. It's the one that struck me as having a a close connection to the story that we just read together. The last line says, I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they don't look low enough, and it's true. Look lower, God is on the bathroom floor. And when I read that, I thought about those lines uh, from verses 16 and 17. In the story that we just read together. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in. And lay all night on the ground. The elders of the house stood beside him. To raise him from the ground. But he would not. David had gone to the floor. He had gone to the ground to petition God. And to argue with God. And to meet God there. And that is where he finds God in the place of his deep suffering. It is not the mercy that he asked for church, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I think this story uh, can teach us about our own walks through suffering. It's important for us to remember uh, where we left off in this story, where we left off last week. It's, a, it's important to remember the place at which David finds himself. Nathan, uh, the prophet, as you remember, has confronted David about what he has done. He's confronted him in very, very specific terms. And David, uh, unlike many, many, many people in positions of power who are confronted with their wrongdoing, uh, he does not evade. He does not prevaricate. He does not enter into double speak. David makes no excuses. He doesn't amp up again. He doesn't try to use his power to escape. He minces absolutely zero words and he says, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. And I think this is a perfect example of why Israel held and why we hold David in this particular regard that we hold him in. I mean, we know what he's done, but we also know that he is capable of a a, a deeply dignifying honesty before God and man. And so he comes clean and Nathan speaks immediately in response to David's confession He says, the Lord also has put away your sin, David. You will not die. You'll not die. (laughs) And you know, on the one hand, intellectually, I hope that this is no surprise for any of us to hear about God, this kind of grace and this kind of forgiveness. I hope this doesn't surprise us because God has always shown himself in Scripture and in our own lives to be again and again and again, Someone who shows mercy to those who do not deserve any mercy. But on the other hand, existentially, (laughs) I hope that people like us never stop being surprised at being the receivers of mercy like this. Because if that's who, if we follow Jesus, that's exactly who we are. As the psalm writer says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wing. And David is hidden in that shadow now. And David knows it. You know, even though the law uh, was crystal clear, it was crystal clear about the justice that was due David because of the murder of Uriah, even though the law... Uh, was crystal clear about that, that justice is now mysteriously subsumed under the shadow of the gracious love of God. And And the reason that I want us to think about that again, and the reason that I want us to grapple with that again, and the reason I want us to come to terms with that again, that kind of mercy and that kind of grace, is because if we will not look at that straight in the eye, then we might be tempted to think that this Horrific consequence that David deals with in this story. The death of this child. We might be tempted to think that this is punishment from God. Or that it is retribution from God. In church, it is not punishment. And it is not retribution. Because David is a forgiven man. In the the gospel lesson that we heard this morning. Jesus' disciples uh, see a man who has been born blind and they ask Jesus, well, you know, who sinned? Did this guy sin? Did his parents sin that he is born blind? But Jesus' response is to reject the premise. Jesus' response is to say that that is not how it works. It's not that this man sinned or his parents sinned. It is that the works of God might be displayed in him. God has something else. He has something better in mind that he will work through this man's suffering. And Jesus leaves the the causal relationship, the cause between God, you know, that exists between God and this man's blindness, Jesus leaves it opaque. The point is that Jesus wants to get his disciples to the place where they will ask, okay, what will happen now? What good does God have in mind through this man's suffering? And I think maybe that it uh, is uh, helpful for us too. I mean, I'll be honest, you know, for two, two weeks straight, I have, I have wondered and I've wrestled about why this child had to suffer and die. And I wish I could just skip over it. You know, I, I wish that I never had to talk about the afflicting providence of God. And the answer remains opaque. I don't know why. I mean, I know that it's not a punishment for David's sin. God said he's forgiven. I know because of what Nathan said to David that it is in some way a consequence of his sin. David is the one that's introduced violence and death into his own household, and this is the first effect of that dark ecology. But I wish it could be something else. I wish the good that God has in mind could have come in another way, but it did not. And this child suffers, and David suffers. And so maybe we are pushed to that place that Jesus had his disciples go in front of that blind man standing there. What will happen now? And you know, this is the same place we find ourselves in when we suffer, the causes for that suffering often remain opaque to us, they are confusing to us. Questions that we ask about our own suffering go unanswered. Sometimes they're never answered. And so the question that we have to ask is, what will happen now? I mean, we all suffer, church. It's it's an inescapable part of being human, and God's people are not spared from it. And even though they take on different degrees and different shades and looks and timing in our lives, there's really only two responses to suffering. We either move towards God in trust where we move away from him in despair. So David moves towards God. He he goes to the ground and he fasts and he weeps and he prays for 7 days on behalf of this child. And just in this, just in seeing that this happened, we see a change taking place in David. He has already, in this very moment, the moment he went to the ground, he has grown in his capacity for love. I mean, remember, church, you have to remember, this is the child that David did not want. This is the child that he had tried to pawn off on Uriah. This is the child that he wanted out of his life. This is the child... Uh, that has caused shame and pain and has led to the dismantling of David's life. Over the course of this whole episode, over this whole sordid affair, the last thing that has been on David's mind is love, but not now. Not anymore. Now with all of his formidable will and with all of his formidable power, He intercedes on behalf of this child. And a great change has taken place. The David who had been bent in on himself for so long now begins to look outside of himself again and the faculties and the habits of self-giving love are reawakened in him. Church, it is not the mercy that he asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. David moves towards God. You know, and just in saying that, just in hearing that, we can feel and apprehend and we can sense even another change in David's life. This is the David, remember church, this is the David who has been oblivious to God. This is the David who has spent a long time playing his own God This is the David who has imposed his sick and twisted will on everyone around him, using them as tools and as objects and as agents, but not now. David has stopped playing God, and now he is coming to God as a child. Who knows? Who knows? whether the Lord will be gracious to me or not. I mean, this is the essential posture that David takes. It is the one that Jesus said, those who are great in the kingdom of God will always take. He is lying before God as a child. (laughs) Robert uh, Alter He's a great Old Testament scholar. He teaches at Berkeley. Um, He suggests that this moment, this moment is the great turning point in David's life. He writes that David does not speak here selfishly and David does not speak here politically. David finally speaks out of his existential nakedness. And I read that line and and I thought to myself about what Jesus taught us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And blessed are the meek, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's like David knows who he is again. It's like David knows who God is again. John Calvin said that knowing this, knowing who we are, and knowing who God is, is the sum of wisdom worth calling certain and true in this life. David has returned to his humanity. He has returned to the life that he had been made for. Church, it is not the mercy that he asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And so we have to ask, you know, what if part of the good that was meant for us in our suffering, what if part of the good of our suffering is to grow us in love? What if if part of the good that is meant in your suffering and in my suffering is to return us, to move us towards being fully human again, to know who we are, to know who God is. You know, what if, what if some of what is meant for good in our suffering is to give us the gifts of wisdom and strength and compassion and character and maybe even a real durable joy that is not shaken. Well, this is what the church has found to be true again and again and again in her suffering. These are the sure gifts of God to his people who suffer, given to those who move towards him in trust. This is the truth, church. This is the truth. It's not uncommon uh, either in scripture or in our own lives to receive answers to prayers that are different than the answers we wanted. You know, all you have to do is think of uh, David here, or Job, or the Apostle Paul from our New Testament lesson, or, of course, Jesus' own prayer in the garden on the night before he died. Jesus suffered too, and he asked the Father to remove it from him, and he did not. He entered into further suffering. But church, Jesus did not suffer so that all of our suffering in this life would be taken away. He suffered so that when we suffer, we can look more like him. We can be made to be more like him. He suffered so that he can suffer with us as he grows us into who we were meant to be. And this comes as we move away from despair in our suffering and towards him in trust. So the epilogue to the story is the birth of Solomon. He's the one through whom the promise of the line of David continues, which is to say, he is the one through whom God keeps all of his promises for good. Church, out of this dead end, really... right at the border of death. God works new life. Just when the promise seems exhausted, (laughs) the promise is kept again. And this is the story of scripture, and this is the story of God, and the world, and me, and you, again, and again, and again. This is how God is. He is a God that we can trust when we suffer. Let me pray for us. Father, you know, uh, you know how we are. <laughs> you know the great lengths uh, that we go to uh, to avoid suffering, to distract ourselves from it, to put it off. You know what it does to us, to our frame that you know so well. You know how it, it wants us to crumple in, it makes us want to crumple in on ourselves. And so we ask, Father, that you would help us um, to be a people who in suffering move towards you in trust for whatever those gifts are that you would hand to us in our suffering for whatever good thing you may have in mind. Father, help us to trust you um, so that when we suffer, we get these gifts and that comfort. Help us to trust you so that through us, you can love this broken suffering world around us.